There's a quote I keep hearing from people who live and work around Everglades National Park. It goes like this. The Everglades is a test. If we pass it, we may get to keep the planet. That quote is bouncing around in my head as I zip across Florida Bay in a speedboat. It's a clear day, blue sky, some white puffy clouds. Holy, this is glorious. Well, you picked the right day, I can tell you that. This is the first time I've been to Everglades National Park. I'm off the southern tip of Florida, near the Florida Keys. But instead of drinking margaritas at a seafood shack, I'm out on the water. Even better. Jerry Lorenz slows the boat so we can look at a fleet of about 20 black frigate birds coasting on the wind above us. Wow. All these birds in Are that. the mangrove right here are what we see flying on. Yep. And that is spectacular. These birds can fly for up to two months without touching down. Wow. Jerry's got his hair in a ponytail and a bandana tied around his head. He's wearing a back brace. He seems pretty relieved we're not moving anymore. It's a super calm day, but even the soft bumps getting here were pretty hard on him. I'm hoping to come home without a lot of pain. (laughs) Decades in the field here have taken a toll on his body. Jerry works for the Audubon Society, a nonprofit that studies birds. Jerry directs all their Florida research. And he's been studying wildlife in the Everglades for 34 years. It's like everybody loves the manatees, the sea turtles. And I mean, you know, that's a cliche. But yeah, so do I, you know. I mean, it's what I love. This is the perfect place for an animal lover. It's exploding with life. Manatees and sea turtles, but also fish, birds, dolphins, crocodiles. They thrive in the mix of freshwater and saltwater in Florida Bay. Florida Bay, when I got here in it was September 1989, was glorious. He came here from Kentucky. I was so immature and green. I didn't realize how special it was. First day on a job, I saw this bald eagle. The bald eagle came across with a barracuda and started to come down, saw us, banked, dropped the barracuda. And I was like, I'm in a national park. And I work here. This is amazing. This bay was his laboratory. He'd cruise around on his boat, going spot to spot between sandbars and mangrove islands and seagrass basins, collecting data. And it was like flying over a magic green carpet. The the seagrass was so thick, and you're in, I mean, the water is about a foot and a half to two feet deep, but it looked like you were in six inches of water, and the grass was just coming up at you. And uh, halfway across that basin, I just stopped and ate lunch. And uh, that is what I want to see again. I just felt like, this is magical. You you can't get anything like this anywhere else in the world. It's been a long time since those lunches when everything around him seemed to be in harmony. Because all that changed 
one afternoon in early 1990, just a few months after he first arrived. You know, I'd stopped and was going to do my thing, but it stank too much. And I'm sitting there looking at all those dead seagrass on the bottom turning brown. It smelled like sulfur or rotting eggs. And soon, it spread. Dead seagrass for miles and miles and miles across Florida Bay. Oh, it was fast. I was going through there quite a bit. And I watched it disappear. What triggered it that quickly? The high salinity in the bay, a high temperature, because it wasn't getting any fresh water. So that's what, you know, that's what triggered. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, yeah, Snook. big fish. Snook, did you say? Yeah. That's good, that's a good snook. <laughs> um, where was I? <laughs> Just a heads up, this is going to keep happening. My conversations are constantly interrupted by animals. Okay, saltwater. Jerry was talking about saltwater. Somehow the salinity in Florida Bay had been thrown completely out of whack. So had the oxygen levels, the water temperature, and the sulfides, which are chemicals in the water containing sulfur. All that combined to lead to a series of catastrophic events. The seagrass died, then that caused a massive algae bloom, then that sucked even more oxygen out of the water, which killed a lot of fish. So like their equivalent of just like suffocating. Yeah. Yeah, there's no oxygen. There's no place they can find oxygen. You know, it's gone. Just unbelievable number of fish died in Florida Bay. Just the whole bank's filled with dead fish, right? And I was like, oh, man. And within six months, you know, my emerald of national parks had turned into a, a pea soup. Pea soup. Jerry was witnessing the collapse of Florida Bay. These problems in the Everglades really came to a head the first time in the late 80s and early 90s. But the causes were decades in the making, and the impacts are still playing out. We're going to see that later as we spend more time with Jerry going to islands in the Everglades that are off-limits to the public. I'm also going to take you back through the pretty wild sequence of events that led to the crisis. The story begins more than 100 years ago. It's the story of how the water flow through South Florida was radically altered to make the region more habitable for people, then how that unintentionally disrupted one of the country's most important ecosystems, and why we're racing to unravel those mistakes today. I'm Lillian Cunningham with The Washington Post, and this is Field Trip. Everglades National Park is one of the largest national parks in the lower 48, behind only Death Valley and Yellowstone. It's also one of the closest national parks to a major city. It's about 40 miles from downtown Miami. The suburbs extend almost all the way to the park entrance. 
But the Everglades, as an ecosystem, is much bigger than just the national park. Historically, it describes most of the southern half of Florida. A lot of people mistake the Everglades for a swamp. Technically, it's a wetland ecosystem with some swamps, but a lot of marshes. It's a landscape of shallow, slow-moving water. You can picture it like a sponge, and all kinds of things like to live on a sponge. That's why the Everglades are so incredibly biodiverse. Nearly 2,000 plant and animal species live here, including 39 threatened or endangered species. You can find everything from ghost orchids to swamp lilies, from grass shrimp to panthers. And the sound here, it's kind of its own symphony. The water, the animals, I've never heard anything like it. There was a sound artist I met um, out and about doing things in uh, South Florida, Gustavo Matamoros, and he said that sound is the evidence of life. So I like that. Sound is the evidence of life. Houston Cypress is one of the other guides on our trip. He's an advocate for Everglades restoration, also a reverend, an artist, and a member of the Otter Clan in the Miccosukee Tribe of Indians of Florida. He brought us to the tribe's reservation. It's right in the center of the Everglades ecosystem, just north of the park. We're stopped on a fan boat. It's a flat-bottom boat with a round fan on the back, and the fan is huge. I'm 5'7", and it's taller than I am. We're in a sawgrass prairie, which... I mean, it's basically a flooded field. The surface of the water is like a mirror reflecting the clouds. I just think of it as like watery skyland. <laughs> skyland. Watery skyland, watery sky water. Houston is looking off into the horizon. Sky water. That's what I like to think of it as. Houston leans back against the bench seat and looks over. I don't know. What do you think, Dante? Yeah, I think so too. I think my also my favorite thing is to watch the clouds as well. That other voice belongs to Durante Blaze Billy. They're an environmental and indigenous rights advocate from the Seminole Tribe of Florida. I think something really significant for our people is being aligned with the nature here and having the deep understanding that we are a part of it. And we are not just human and this is nature, like this is deeply a part of our kin. To understand the story of how this ecosystem came to be so imperiled, you have to understand the human history here, in this place that Durante and Houston call home. Native people have lived here for thousands of years. They built huge earthwork mounds above the water, with homes and even whole settlements on top. They dug canals by hand, creating a system of waterways they could navigate by canoe. This is where our ancestors are. This is where our ancestors have lied for thousands and thousands of years. And this land was here for us when we were in our most dire needs. This was their home and safe harbor. 
I think something really significant in Seminole culture is talking about how vital the Everglades were for our survival during the war times and the way we survived and hid in the Everglades. Durante's talking about the Seminole Wars, a series of bloody conflicts between Native people and the federal government that spanned nearly 50 years from the early to mid-1800s. They became the longest and most expensive wars of Indian removal. As the conflicts dragged on, the tribes retreated deeper and deeper into the Everglades, pursued by U.S. soldiers. This landscape can be so harsh. The sawgrass is razor sharp, like it will draw blood as you move through it. And accounts from the time described the everlasting hum of mosquitoes. As many as 2,000 American soldiers died. It's hard to find definitive numbers of seminal deaths, but the majority of those who survived were forcibly relocated to Oklahoma. Only about 300 Seminoles remained in the Everglades. They never signed a peace treaty. And today, they call themselves the unconquered people. You know, the Everglades gave us everything. The, you know, colonizers that were invading, they didn't know how to navigate it because it was so treacherous. But at the same time, we have to be really conscious of that treacherous nature and live within it. That view of the Everglades as a treacherous and hostile place that became the foundation for so much of what happened next. Because by and large, many of the people who would soon shape the fate of Florida saw this land as valuable only if it could be tamed and transformed. And that transformation would have dire consequences. I think, I think it's a good time to continue the journey. Okay. Yeah. The fan boat engine revs up and we glide out across the sawgrass. Okay, so even though American soldiers saw this as a harsh landscape, Many people in government also saw the potential in this land. In 1847, shortly after Florida became a state, the Polk administration sent a man named Buckingham Smith down to figure out what to do with the Everglades. This was still a century before there was a national park. I took a look at the report he drew up. He described the Everglades as, quote, utterly worthless to civilized man in its present condition. But if they could drain it, he said, it would yield, quote, large tracts of fertile and valuable lands. Over the next hundred years, that was essentially the plan. Developers promoted South Florida as a sun-soaked paradise, and the population began to boom. When Miami was incorporated in 1896, it had just 444 residents. By 1930, it had already grown to more than 110,000. To support that growth, some canals were dredged, some marshlands turned to farmlands. The work went slowly because it turned out draining the Everglades was really hard. Still, the landscape of South Florida was transforming. 
And as it did, environmentalists started pushing back. To hear more about this, I head over to one of the most popular spots in the park, the Anhinga Trail. Audio producer Bishop Sand is with me. We're here for a walk with Kara Cap. Just a beautiful walk through the iconic Everglades. This is exciting. Kara <laughs> <laughs> works for the National Parks Conservation Association. It's a nonprofit that does work across the country. Here, it's been involved in protecting the Everglades since before it was a national park. Kara's been working on environmental issues in South Florida for more than a decade. We start walking, but no joke, one minute into our walk. That sounds like it's coming from this way. We scan the marsh waters next to us because, as I'm about to find out, that is the sound of an alligator. And there it is. Look at his teeth. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> we're gonna back up. <laughs> That's pretty close. There are two alligators. Oh dear. One's about six feet long, the other's around eight feet. And they're not in the water. They are sunning a few feet away from us, right on the side of the path. I think that they're mad at each other, not at us. <laughs> I'm going to be honest, I'm not sure Kara's right. Bishop's microphone has a huge, fluffy cover, and one of the alligators is definitely tracking it with his bulging eye. Bishop starts backing up and then makes a wide circle around them. I dart past them quickly, and Kara just kind of keeps walking normally. Oh my god. Wow. Okay. <laughs> anyway, back to the story of what was changing in Florida in the early 1900s. I learned a lot about this time from a book called The Swamp by former Washington Post journalist Michael Grunwald. So, sweeping development began cutting into the Everglades. The Tamiami Trail went in, that's a highway that cut across the Everglades and basically dammed the water flowing south. The Pennsylvania Sugar Company arrived and converted about 70,000 acres of land to sugar fields. Construction began on Hialeah, an enormous resort complex with casinos and racetracks. And with each new massive development, the Everglades were dwindling. The natural waterways were disrupted, and many of the animals that relied on them were disappearing. People started to really become attuned to the need to conserve what remained of the Everglades. Um, eventually, that effort was spearheaded by Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Who Whoa! Sorry. <laughs> oh, oh, that would be an osprey. <laughs> wow. An osprey flew right into the water here off to our side, scooped down, and got himself a nice fish lunch. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, sorry. So Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. Marjorie Who is she Stoneman and what was Douglas. her role? So everyone knows Marjorie for her work in the Everglades. Well, I came down, I was 25 when I came to Florida in 1915. I came down to get a divorce. This is Marjorie Stoneman Douglas from an interview she gave in 1983. And my father was here as editor of the paper and so on, so I got a job on the paper. And so here I was. It was all very exciting and interesting. The paper eventually became the Miami Herald. 
She wrote first about a mix of issues like urban planning and women's rights. But then... She began experiencing the Everglades and saw pretty quickly that the water was changing and especially the bird populations were changing. Well, the birds have decreased terribly. The birds have decreased enormously for a number of reasons, probably because they're more dry lands, so they haven't nested. Birds, of course, can easily leave a place in search of a better home. So the dwindling number of birds was actually one of the first big indicators that all the dredging and draining was harming the ecosystem. And so it was really her mission to tell people about the Everglades, and she began writing stories about the environment. As I investigated the Everglades and studied it from the point of view of the water system. In the 1920s, she and others began pushing for the creation of a national park. She told a Florida television reporter about it in 1984. We brought a great many people down and had a houseboat and took them around to see it, and they said, yes, it should be a national park. And we started to get really national momentum to take a look at the Everglades as a precious resource. The efforts by Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and others to lobby for a park paid off, although it took a while. In 1934, President Franklin Roosevelt signed the legislation to create Everglades National Park. President Harry Truman dedicated the park in 1947. Each national park possesses qualities distinctive enough to make its preservation a matter of concern to the whole nation. Certainly, this Everglades area has more than its share of features unique to these United States. Here are no lofty peaks seeking the sky, no mighty glaciers or rushing streams wearing away the uplifted land. Here is land tranquil in its quiet beauty, serving not as the source of water, but as the last receiver of it. To its natural abundance, we owe the spectacular plant and animal life that distinguishes this place from all others in the country. What's so interesting to me is that this marked a real turning point in thinking about what a park is for. Up until then, national parks protected places of historical significance or scenic beauty. The Everglades were different. It's a park protected for biodiversity. So we knew that we were protecting something special, and we also knew that we would have to work to keep this place. It also marked another first among national parks. This was not established as a pristine national park, but one that needed restoration because of all of those years altering the water system. And so for decades now, we've been working to bring back what we can of of the clean water of the Everglades. So you're saying even at the time that it was designated a national park, it already needed some restoration help? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The water flow had really been impacted, um, certainly by the time the park had been designated. We've continued to see development impacts since then, but from the very first moment, we knew that this park was going to need help. Hmm. Even though the legislation passed in the 1930s, it took more than a decade to acquire the land and create the park. And during that time, the environment continued to suffer. Marjorie Stoneman Douglas chronicled this. In 1947, she published a book called The Everglades, River of Grass. 
I read it, and wow, she was so prescient. She was already wondering 80 years ago whether humans would be foolish enough to destroy this vital ecosystem. She often said, the Everglades is a test. If we pass it, we may get to keep the planet. That's where that quote is from. I think what she meant was that restoring the Everglades was a test of America's ability to repair its whole relationship with nature. Something that would become more and more important in a modernizing world. The problems of earth and water and air, pollution and all that, seem to be perfectly simple. But we're the ones to know that it must be done. River of Grass became a bestseller just in time for the National Park to open in 1947. It drew attention to the threats posed by development, but it also offered the public this new perspective on the landscape. It wasn't a hellish swamp. It was one of the most extraordinary places on Earth. Her book is really a love letter to the Everglades, full of poetry and wonder. Here she is in that 1983 interview again. It's not a dramatic park, it's a lyric park. And it is, it's that quality of great, quiet poetry. And not everybody can understand it. And the people who can't understand it, let them go somewhere else. That wasn't the end of the conservation efforts. In some ways, the hardest fight was just getting started. And that's because in 1948, just a year after the National Park opened, an engineering project of unprecedented scale started right outside its borders. A project that would end up harming the Everglades far more than they had been already. We'll be right back. One afternoon when I was in the Everglades, I found myself up to my thighs in mud. I was surrounded by a bunch of fourth graders, and the mud was even higher on them. We're in the middle of a slow-moving flow of water called a slough. Pro tip, if you come to the Everglades, do not bring waders or mud boots. You think you want them. You do not. The mud will just fill your boots and pull you down. What you should do is wear little water shoes or sneakers and just embrace being soaked and dirty. I tagged along on a field trip inside the National Park. These kids from Key Largo were learning about the science of how the Everglades work. In very simple terms, water starts up north in a bunch of little lakes around Orlando. It makes its way down the Kissimmee River to a huge lake, Lake Okeechobee. Then it keeps flowing south, and it spreads out in almost a wide sheet down through Everglades National Park. The marshlands here act as a natural filter, cleaning all this water as it journeys down and eventually flows out into Florida Bay. Right before water leaves the national park, some of it moves through an aquifer, which is a stretch of permeable rock below ground that you can tap for drinking water. This aquifer is the primary source of fresh water for the lower east coast of Florida. 
Stop pushing me! Don't touch me! The kids were interested in the science, but mostly they were just having fun in the mud. I can see how building a house or a road or a farm on this would seem totally impossible. And how hurricanes could trigger devastating flooding. Following storms in 1947, much of South Florida flooded. And some of those areas were underwater for more than six months. There was public outcry to do something. As water shows its face, hideous, unrelenting, shrieking its rage, the vicious scourge of mankind. This is an old promo film the government made in the 1950s about draining the Everglades. It's called Waters of Destiny. This is the story of water and its mastery by the determined hand of man. If the water was in the right place at the right time, if the excess water could be removed in a hurry, then brought in when it was needed, central and southern Florida would flower upon the seeds of its own rich resources. Something had to be done and something was. By the late 1940s, the state and federal government started on a plan to drain most of the Everglades that weren't part of the national park. There had been drainage efforts before, but those had been kind of scattershot and not totally successful. This would be different. So monumental, so complex was this project that its detailed planning and construction by the Corps of Engineers would take many years to develop. Since the 1800s, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers had been the main civil engineering arm of the federal government. These were the same people who had built levees along the Mississippi River, dams on the Missouri River. They're also the ones that made this old film. The year after all that flooding, which was also the year after the park opened, Congress tapped them to build a network of projects to, once and for all, remove and control the water across South Florida. All that had to be done was build the reservoirs, the channels, the levees, the spillways, the pumping stations, the gates, the saltwater barriers, the whole integrated system of water controls. That's all. The big goals were flood protection and drying out land so it could be used for housing and agriculture, and to provide drinking water for the up to 2 million people they estimated would live in the area by the year 2000. By the way, they underestimated it by about 3 million people. Altogether, the entire project tackled represents one of the largest earth-moving jobs since the digging of the Panama Canal. But how would draining an area like this even work? Here's how the Army Corps of Engineers did it. They dug thousands of miles of canals to funnel water out to the coasts. They built pumps to dry out land for development. They built levees to prevent flooding. They built dikes around Lake Okeechobee to stop water from flowing south. And the most striking example, to me, was what they did to the Kissimmee River. They transformed a meandering 103-mile river into a stick-straight, 56-mile mega-canal. By 1971, more than two decades later, the engineers' work was complete. They had successfully controlled flooding and redirected water. 
Much of South Florida now resembled an elaborate grid of dry land broken up by straight lines of canals. In essence, they had re-plumbed the Everglades. To environmentalists like Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, this was a disaster. She was notably opposed to the changes in the Kissimmee River. It was, in her words, among the most radical alterations of a river in human history. And the side effects from all these projects would continue to mount. The day Audubon scientist Jerry Lorenz showed us around Florida Bay was sunny. The wind was gentle, the water was clear. We pulled up to a little mangrove island. When Jerry sat on his boat in 1989, looking out at this same bay, but seeing pea soup, that was because of all the work done on the Everglades throughout the years. By the time all that replumbing work was complete, about half of the wetlands had been destroyed, according to the Army Corps' own report. I asked the Army Corps of Engineers whether the agency had been aware of the environmental impacts their work would cause. A spokeswoman pointed out that when this work began in 1948, that kind of comprehensive environmental analysis wasn't required by federal law. She said that there was, quote, some recognition of environmental effects on the greater Everglades, but she added that it doesn't appear that the extent of the impact system-wide was understood. I'll talk with someone from the Army Corps at greater length later in the episode. But by the 1980s, the unintended consequences were becoming clear to them and everyone else. Less fresh water was making its way down through Everglades National Park and out to Florida Bay. Then from 1988 to 89, there was a drought, and that exacerbated the problem. Suddenly, there was a drastic freshwater decline, and it triggered the ecosystem collapse Jerry had witnessed back then, when the water looked like pea soup. Bishop asks him about it. So when you see that, that scene in front of you, like, mm-hmm. can you, can you envision it right now? Like, what does it, what does it make you feel? Angry. I mean, um, it's do something about this. Florida Bay is an estuary where fresh water from the Everglades and salt water from the ocean need to mix in just the right proportion to support abundant sea life. So, when so little fresh water was flowing into Florida Bay, the salt levels shot out of control. Dolphin and manatee and crocodiles and um, uh, water snakes. Their numbers in Florida Bay were all going down. Sea turtles, the one um, the diamondback terrapin that, that we have here. He meticulously documented their declines. The fish, redfish went down, bonefish went down. The more data he collected, the more he realized that it was these changes in the water flow that had killed the seagrass and the fish and all sorts of other animals. The number of osprey nests, bald eagles, Pelicans, reddish egrets, the numbers of reddish egrets have gone down. Great white herons. Uh, you know, all these things were documented, and they're happening in front of my eyes. 
Jerry says he watched the wading bird populations decrease by more than 90%. But it wasn't just scientists who were concerned. Throughout the 1990s, almost everyone in South Florida was feeling the effects. And it's obvious is, is how important this, this um, landscape is and the health of this landscape is to our economy. I mean, it is our economy. We don't do anything else. And keep in mind, at that time, you know, we were getting up in arms, and people in the Keys especially were, were you know, shouting to the high heavens about this damage. Turns out all that water flowing slowly through the Everglades was central to Florida's magic. They may have needed to drain it to develop the land, but you couldn't actually maintain a developed paradise home to millions of happy residents and tourists without it. It was an epic catch-22. If the Everglades was a test, it wasn't going well, and the government wanted a do-over. In the year 2000, a decade after those big signs of ecosystem failure, Congress first passed the Water Resources Development Act. It promised nearly $8 billion to restore the Everglades. This is a very happy day for the Everglades. This is Florida's then-Senator Bob Graham, right after the bill was signed. There has never been an effort of the scale or complexity that is now underway uh, to save uh, a dying environmental system. Graham was a Democrat, and Florida's governor at the time was a Republican, Jeb Bush. Things had gotten so bad and the state was suffering so much that saving the Everglades had gone from being an environmentalist issue to an issue with broad bipartisan political support, both in Florida and Washington. Congress had initially plowed a lot of money into plumbing the Everglades in the hopes of strengthening the state. It had worked. Now Florida had so many people, nearly 16 million, and was so politically and economically valuable to the nation that Congress put even more money into fixing the mistakes. Congress went back to the Army Corps of Engineers and told the same agency that had drained the Everglades to now restore them. But it wouldn't be easy or fast. Is that her? 12 o'clock. 12 o'clock? Yep, yeah, right there. Little right. Got her? I want to better understand how restoration has unfolded here in the past two decades. That's how I find myself out on a boat. Again, this time on a tiny skiff in the Gulf of Mexico. And Benny Blanco sees a fish. Oh my gosh! Oh my god! Chris Whitman hooks it. He's at the front of the boat working hard to reel it in. The excess line at his feet is zipping out fast. He's hot stepping over it. Watch your legs, watch your legs. Benny is dancing around, pulling on gloves, getting ready. Oh my God. The boat's so small that every time he steps left, I have to step right. He goes forward, I go back. The fish leaps out of the water. It's a tarpon. How big do you think she is? 60. 60 pounds. I mean, so just for scary. reference, there were this, several fish that were cast to that were double her size. 
I mean... <laughs> Wait till you see her up close. Oh my gosh. Then, and I cannot believe this, just as we're in the middle of this incredible moment... There's a dolphin out here. Oh my god, yes! There's a pod of dolphins swimming just past the fish. Two? There's like probably ten of them. Ten of them or so. Got her! They hold the fish gently against the side of the boat. It's maybe six feet long and prehistoric looking and shimmering with big, beautiful eyes. Oh my gosh. This is like, like a jewel. Silver and purple and... Look at her eyes. She's watching you. She'll look at me, she'll look at you. Yeah, she'll move her eye around. She'll touch her. Really? Yeah. Feel how hard she is. Oh my gosh. Isn't that amazing? Feel this flapper here. It's like a shell. Yeah. It's It's like like touching. That's why we have to use those special hooks. What a beautiful creature. Yep. How you doing, Mama? You ready? They throw her back into the water, like they try to do with all the fish they catch. Wow. Okay. She's gone. <laughs> oh. Woo! <laughs> yes. 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 I got you. <laughs> what do you oh think? Oh my god. This is the Everglades. You just witnessed it. I mean, yes. I'm kind of speechless. I... <laughs> yeah, you don't have to talk. You just take it in. Just take it in. That's just all we ask. Yeah. It. There's just no place like this. There's no place like this. Benny looks out at the water while Chris catches his breath. Now you know why we fight so hard. Benny's not talking about catching this fish. He's talking about fighting to restore the Everglades. Still, today, more than two decades after restoration began. Although the water today looks clean and clear, it wasn't, even just a few years ago. It's partly due to the efforts of people like Chris and Benny that it now looks as good as it does. Benny grew up outside Miami. He's the child of Cuban immigrants. I found myself out here when I was a kid. When you're here, you forget about everything else. <laughs> Nothing else matters. You, you become connected on a soul level. It's not something you can explain. You leave, and all you want to do is come back. He and Chris, and Daniel Andrews, another captain who's with us, they all grew up in South Florida and became fishing guides. And they're all basically wearing the same outfit. Polarized glasses, baseball caps, long sleeve sun shirts. Sport fishing is a $1.2 billion industry in the Everglades. Visitors from around the world pay hundreds of dollars for the experience of reeling in a tarpon and other fish that are big, rare, and tough to catch. But not long ago, these guys watched from their boats as the Everglades suffered another major collapse. It was 2016. I was really excited. The season was starting early. and This is Daniel. Next thing you know, a month or two later, we've got these algae blooms. You had cyanobacteria blooms. The grass is all dying. The oysters are all dying. And that was what I built my business on. That was what my life was revolved around. Benny jumps back in. The fish were basically gone. I mean, and I'll be honest, I was 
very worried we were gonna I mean, a lot of the old-time guides were like, it's over, it's done, it's gone. Almost 30 years had passed since the seagrass die-off Jerry Lorenz witnessed. And more than 15 years had passed since the act to restore the Everglades. But this was a huge and complex undertaking, so the fixes were going slowly, and the flow of water was still badly choked there still wasn't enough fresh water making its way south. The water quality was in trouble too, something the Army Corps says is outside its control. Phosphorus and other chemicals were going into the water upstream, mostly runoff from fertilizer and sewage, and the Everglades were struggling to filter it out. This, plus higher temperatures, more rainfall, it all combined to cause the algae bloom Stan's talking about. Jerry had seen the water turn to pea soup. Now news stories describe the water around South Florida as looking like guacamole. We couldn't take our clients out, and like I didn't have anything to do. You know, my life was fishing, and I couldn't do that. So the captains decided to speak out. Then it was like, we're screwed if we keep going down this path. And... We don't know if we can do anything about it, but we're damn sure not going to sit around and do nothing. Mm -hmm. A number of them started going up to Tallahassee, the state capital, to urge politicians to fix the water problems before their livelihoods and the place they loved disappeared. Chris and Daniel created an advocacy organization called Captains for Clean Water to give fishing guides a voice in the fight. Seven years later, they're still at it pushing for projects and legislation that would move more fresh water into Everglades National Park faster. Everglades restoration is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so we're still, what's a marathon, 13.5 miles? <laughs> 26. 26 miles? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ain't no way in yeah. hell I'm ever running a marathon. <laughs> but, you know, it's, we're like mile seven. There are so many people like the captains pushing for Everglades restoration today. While I was in Florida, there was a major annual gathering going on, the Everglades Coalition Conference. It first took place in 1986, when a group of people met to discuss their concern about the Everglades. And it's happened every year since. Nearly everyone we've heard from in the episode so far is here this year. The captains, Jerry, Houston, Kara. Powerful figures have attended this conference over the years. One of those people who's here now is Ava Velez. She oversees the Army Corps of Engineers' ecosystem restoration efforts in South Florida. I sat down in a little room with her right off the main conference hall. I came here to talk with her because... I was really interested in how the restoration efforts are going. But more than that, I wanted to understand what the Army Corps of Engineers has learned from the mistakes of the past. I started by asking Ava what she thought had gone wrong originally. So when we designed the system, we thought about it as engineers, and we thought about the most efficient way to provide especially flood control and water supply. And so we created canals where there may have been rivers or levees 
where there may have been lakes. That is the biggest lesson that we learn. We thought of it as a place we could make into compartments and we needed it to stay interconnected. And that's what we're trying to get back. Mm. It seems like there's a bit of a, a shift in thinking where maybe we realize nature actually has a lot to tell us about the right way for water to move through this system. The, the term you hear now is engineering with nature. We realize that the natural system protects the people. This reminds me of what I heard about wildfires in Yosemite, about letting nature itself guide the solutions. Here in the Everglades, that's what they're trying to do too. The Army Corps of Engineers is tearing out a lot of its previous work and replacing it with designs that more closely resemble the natural flow. For example, they recently finished work to turn the Kissimmee River back into more of a river. They say it's the first time ever that a major river ecosystem like this has been restored. That's just one of the dozens of projects Ava's been coordinating. Since Everglades restoration began, the Army Corps has been chipping away at a 22,000-page plan for all the projects that need to happen. Each one requires scoping, planning, funding, public input, and authorization from Congress. They are massive undertakings. Like the construction of a reservoir that, when completed, will cover about 16 square miles, making it the Army Corps' largest freestanding reservoir in the country. Since all these efforts are designed to better mimic nature, it made me wonder. Why not just undo it all and just let the Everglades flow the way the Everglades want to flow? We now have 9 million people that live in South Florida. And if we remove it all, it will hurt those people. Their safety depends on the system that we built in the, from the 1950s to the 1970s. We can't undo it all because there are parts of the Everglades where there is now neighborhoods and cities. What we have to do is make a better balance and preserve the part of the Everglades we have left. So what we will have is the essence. What we won't have is how big it was. Even after the restoration work is complete, Ava told me the footprint of the Everglades will still be only about half of what it once was. And the water supply will still be limited. Think of water as a budget in your bank account. And it's the dry season. And everybody needs it. The big farms and the sugarcane industry need it. Miami needs it. And of course, the Everglades need it too. How we make sure that we give water to the natural system and meet all the needs of the people 
is where the hard conversations happen. Those hard conversations sometimes take the form of political fights over money and which projects get funded first. But in the past few years, there's been another major turning point in the story of the Everglades, one that's been big news for people trying to protect it, like the captains and Jerry and Kara. The Biden administration and the state of Florida have committed billions of dollars to speed up and expand restoration work. Congressional reports project it will ultimately cost more than $23 billion by the year 2050, making this one of the most expensive environmental rehab projects ever. The National Park Service told me that they've already seen, quote, tangible ecological benefits from the restoration work so far, including more and deeper water throughout the park and improvements to the flora and fauna. They did add, though, that the next phase of work will be critical. The next 10 years are really important. What we are also seeing is already the effects of climate change and sea level rise. The Florida Peninsula is the most at risk. And what that means is that we have even more urgency for this program to continue at this pace. Southern Florida is not very high above sea level. So, yeah, that's a problem when you think about climate change. It's not just sea level rise, though. Drought, hurricanes, even wildfires are also problems facing South Florida. But many of the current restoration projects will actually help combat these challenges. The phrase I heard from someone in the Park Service is that you have to fight water with water. So, like, as these projects bring more freshwater back into the Everglades, they'll push saltwater out. It doesn't mean that our ecosystems won't change along the shoreline. They will. Because sea level rise is happening. But if they're healthier, they will be more resilient. And then we will all be more protected. As my trip through the Everglades draws to a close, I think more about my time out in Florida Bay with Jerry Lorenz. Here, I got a glimpse through Jerry's eyes of how climate is changing this place, on top of all the other changes he's already witnessed. He took us to a tiny mangrove island that he called a key. We've scooted out of the boat into the water. It's so shallow, you can just slosh through it. In general, people aren't allowed to step foot on these islands, the main reason being that they're such important nesting habitats for birds. But Jerry has special permission from the Park Service because of his research, and we got permission to go with him. The mud on this island is as deep as the mud back in the slough with the fourth graders, but way thicker, and it smells like bird poop. Oh, yeah, don't step into open mud. I just got stuck and toppled in hands first. That is not a rookie mistake. Trust me. I've done that hundreds of times. We're looking for a bird called the roseate spoonbill. It's big, sometimes nearly three feet tall, and pink and fabulous. 
Jerry has described it as an orchid taken to wing. He says hundreds of them used to nest on this key. If the water flow is just right, the spoonbill thrives in this part of the Everglades. But the flow still isn't right. And Jerry's been documenting the bird's decline here for years. He has memories from decades ago of wading through the mud to count them. Imagine coming in further down that way where there's this little creek that comes in and you know, it's really hard. You got mud up to your, up to your belt. And then you come into this habitat, and sitting right here, um, I would have been able to count, without moving, 30 spoonbill nests, just right here. And then I'd move 100 feet down that creek, and there'd be 30 more. And that's what this, and this, the, the noise, right? The, the noise was, was astounding. And the only thing I can hear now is the wind blowing on the surf on the beach. Um, so, yeah, I find this very eerie being, being on a key that had, you know, so much, so much life on it. And so you just got to imagine just what it was like. You just, it'd be amazing. You'd, you'd just be amazed by the whole thing. And so you don't really have hope that spoonbills are going to come back here again in those kind of numbers. I don't, I don't think so. I think these last surviving spoonbills that try to reproduce and don't, um, I think that's going to be the end of it. <gasps> oh my gosh, I just got a glimpse of it through the trees. I see a spoonbill. It's big, but it touches down so softly on a tree branch high above us. It's flamingo pink with orange tail feathers. It has a comically wide bill. Perching there, it does look like a flower. A single flower, all alone. How different from when this island was full of pink feathers. Spoonbills... They don't want to go someplace else. They want to be here. But here doesn't work anymore. Right? Here does not work for them anymore. And that breaks my heart. You have sunglasses on, so I can't totally tell, but I mean, I can tell how emotional you're getting. It's sad. Do you find yourself crying a lot like this, looking at Oh, I try not to think about it. Um, try to be objective, stick to the science, and do what I can. Jerry and I stand here, listening to the spoonbill together. It's easy to put it to the back of your mind and just go, this is glorious, right? It, it's not hard to do. It's just, I want to fix it. <laughs> I just want, I just want to fix it. Yeah. What does fixing it look like for you, though? Well, right now, I don't know. With sea level rise, I, I, I know that the reason that I wanted to fix it, I wanted it back like it was when I got here, at least. 
That's what I wanted. Um, with sea level rise, I got to change my horizon. I don't know what that'll look like, but it won't be as ugly if we restore flow to the bay. Like, I won't wake up, you know, one year down the road and I see everything that I love dead. You know, that will not happen if we get the water right. Whether that will happen is still the big question. My dream was to have it the way it was. That's not going to happen. But it can still be stunningly beautiful and productive, and, you know, these animals can find a way. As I left the Everglades, I found myself thinking about how perspectives on this landscape have dramatically shifted over time. How a place, some derided as a swamp, was then heralded as a paradise. How a place damaged by human hands is now being restored by them. There are so many of these kinds of evolutions and even contradictions embedded in the way America has treated its most special places, even in a landscape as different from the Everglades as the desert. Did it feel then like, I don't know, growing up there, like the government found sort of generally the place where you live to be immensely valuable or immensely disposable? Both. Both. Immensely disposable and immensely valuable and still to this day immensely valuable it's it's uniquely itself and there's no other place like it in the world that's next time on field trip Field Trip was reported and produced by me, Lillian Cunningham, Bishop Sand, and Emma Talkoff. It was edited by Robin Amer and Theo Balcom. Additional editing by Renita Jablonski, Juliet Eilprin, Dana Hedgepeth, Krissa Thompson, and Courtney Kahn, who's also our projects editor. Copy editing by Mike Sorelli. Our fact checkers for this episode were Wu Dan Yan and Bishop Sand. Sound design and mixing by Jim Briggs. And additional production support from Sam Baer. The series includes original music by Decoded Forests. Our credits theme is by Ilani Music. Field Trip's show art is by Kati Huertas. Archival tape courtesy of Miami-Dade College and the Library of Congress. Special thanks to the Harry S. Truman Library. We have incredible photos for this series by Bonnie Jo Mount and Matt McLean. You can see their photos and find more on the national parks at WashingtonPost.com slash travel. Special thanks to Allison Michaels, Arjun Singh, Rob Rosenthal, and Michael Grunwald. I recommend his book, The Swamp, for anyone who wants to dig deeper into the history of the Everglades. In making this show, it was so important to me to bring you inside all of these parks and to bring you along on my reporting journey. 
that work would not have been possible without the support of Washington Post subscribers. If you're not yet a subscriber, you can unlock a special deal as a listener to this series. Your first four weeks are free when you sign up at WashingtonPost.com slash Parks Podcast.